Hello and welcome back to the Chat Talks HR podcast. Today I'm delighted to be having a conversation with Rachel Lewis, practitioner and academic in occupational psychology, specialising in mental health at work. Hi Rachel, welcome to the Chat Talks HR podcast. Hi Anthony. So Rachel, um, do you want to start by giving the listeners a brief overview of what you get up to as this practitioner and academic? <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's a funny um, it's a it's a fine line. It's a funny position to take. So, so yeah. So part of my time, I I'm based at Birkbeck. I'm a reader at Birkbeck, um, which is part of University of London. Um, there, I I did with Joe Yarka set up the um, professional doctorates in occupational psychology. But now I just um, work and supervise students who are going through their doctorates or PhDs. Um, but most of my life, I'm I'm a practitioner, and I run um, along with Joe Yarkep um, a consultancy called Affinity Health at Work. And at Affinity, we we were originally set up as a research consultancy, and so lots of what we do is research. And I guess that that's where the academic practitioner element is so important. Um, now we do both research in the area of mental health and well-being at work, but also do consultancy, which ranges from risk assessments to gap analyses to training to coaching and everything in between fantastic and, and i know you obviously specialize in mental health at work but you've just done a really interesting piece of research around the cost of living crisis which is such a hot topic at the moment so so why did you want to do research around the cost of living crisis when you specialize in mental health at work yeah it's a really it's a really good question um so since 2006 at affinity we've run a consort a research consortium and that's a consortium of organizations it varies in size but it's about 12 different organizations and institutions that that essentially are committed to health and well-being at work and who every year fund research that we do so the consortium decides on the research area we then design the research area and then we do the research essentially for them. And the cost of living crisis, when it was decided, this was last September, the decision was made to do this. The cost of living crisis came up very highly. Um, in terms of the link between cost of living crisis and mental health, um, so the, the cost of living crisis officially started in, in September 2021. Um, and it refers to this kind of a real fall in, in disposable incomes. In fact, we've had in the, the, the OBR, the Office for Budget Responsibility, suggests that in, in this period between 22 and 23, we're going to have the biggest one-year fall in living standards since records began in 1956. So it's had a massive impact. The estimation is that 87% um, of households in the in the UK have been negatively affected by the cost of living crisis. And when they, um, and I guess where it becomes relevant in terms of mental health is that, is that what, we, what we've seen from many surveys, so a recent one by YouGov um, earlier this year said that half of um, employees surveyed were experiencing anxiety about um, paying their bills. Um, what that means is that in organisations, half of employees are, are experiencing anxiety. I, I would say that's probably more now. And we know that there's research shows there's a really clear link between financial stress and 
and emotional stress and depression. Um, so therefore, it's really likely that that the, the cost of living crisis and the impact on that is, is having a negative impact in terms of well-being for employees. So therefore, for, the, for those organisations that are kind of interested and committed to this area, um, we wanted to support them both because they have their, uh, perhaps a moral imperative, um, an ethical imperative, but also the, the, the business case shows really clearly that if people aren't, aren't happy at work, if they are anxious at work, they're not going to be as productive. So there's also a really clear business case for us to think about how organisations can better support employees during this cost of living crisis. I think that's, that's important, isn't it? Because we, we talk about employee engagement, we talk about intrinsic motivators, and we've got to forget, we, we can't forget that actually people don't just sit in work and think about work and then go home outside of work and think you're outside of work. They never have, but actually with such a proportion of the workforce doing in some way or form something hybrid or more flexible in their approach, then actually work and home leak into each other so much. So I, I think this is... Um, it, it's quite scary, actually, your, your your figure that half employees are experiencing anxiety about it. That, that's kind of putting it on a level pegging with how we were in lockdowns and things like that. And we think of lock, uh, the pandemic being such a huge PTSD anxiety problem. But it seems it's, what you're saying here is actually this could be as, as tough and as bad from a mental health point of view. Yeah, and I think there's also that sense um, of powerlessness that we had in the pandemic as well. That, that one of the reasons that people had such high levels of mental Ill health was because there there feels like this lack of control and as humans we we like to we like to feel like we're in control yeah. and the other the other similarity with the pandemic is the amount of information so during the pandemic obviously every time we turned on the TV or the radio it would be an update on on number of deaths or expected or or where where it had moved to or or the new variants or so on. And here, what we see, if you if you just think of your news viewing in the last in the last week or so, it relates to it relates to strikes, it relates to mortgage rates, it it relates to how those interest rates might continue to go up. Um, I, I turned on the radio just for five minutes before this, and I heard somebody, I heard Sadiq Khan, the, the mayor of London, talk about they're expecting a, a a far higher level of house repossessions than they've ever seen. And so you think about that in kind of the collective trauma of that that happens, that even if you're not directly in in, in trouble now, then the, the whole narrative is you might be. The whole narrative is you might you might be. Um nobody's safe here. We don't know what's gonna happen. Yeah, and and Sorry, I'm just off on a tangent here, just thinking about where I stack in in, in the, the, the the water line. Where's the water rising and people are uh, jumping into trouble? It's a whole horrible thought, isn't it? Because safety nets start going, and especially if um, organisations stop routing and things like that, you could you could be in a complete mess, really. And so I can I can now see why it's such an imperative. And I think uh, well done to your consortium for for identifying this as as something to to look into. So. Your your actual research. Talk to me about what you actually went in there because you had a slight angle, didn't you, on 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 the research you did. So what we wanted to see was how organisations can support employees through non-pay offers and non-pay incentives. So the 
the reason for this is that many of the organisations in our in our consortium are public sector organisations. So that might be healthcare trusts, um, it might be central government or local government organisations. And within those organisations, they, they do not necessarily have autonomy over, over employee pay. And so, whereas in private organisations, you could say, to, to help people to deal with the cost of living crisis, you have to pay them more or you have to be able to give them short term loans or whatever that might be. That's that's not at the at the behest of of lots of organizations and lots of really large employers. So what we wanted to understand was how if we are in a situation where we can't increase pay, how we can still import, how we can support employees and what we know about how to support employees. It's interesting, and I think even in the private sector, where there is probably more flexibility, there's a there's a huge pressure that actually that the, the pandemic, those couple of years, 2020, 2021, affected the performance of most organisations, and it's almost like a clawback. We need to get more profit than we had because we had to spend so much to keep the, the lights on in mm-hmm. 2020, 2021. So I can see this probably has relevance mm-hmm. for everyone, even though your consortium was made mainly public. So that's fantastic that you were looking at things that didn't involve money to help people when they were probably having anxiety about what essentially was money. So, and I think this is probably opens up to most of our listeners because actually they'll all be trying to do things to support well-being in work, but actually may not have a budget uh, specifically to pay people more. So that's fantastic. So how did you go about your research? What did you, what did you do to actually collate the data to help you? So the way we always conduct our research at Affinity is is using an evidence-based practice model. And and that's based on the the model or um, framework that was developed by um, Rob Breener and colleagues back in 2008. Um, And it's this idea that to get get the most effective solution to a, a problem, you need to collect data from as many sources as possible. So if we look at the traditional approach to research, it, it might be um, getting academic data, getting data on what's previously been published, and that becomes your fact. Um, but evidence-based practice started in the medical profession, and what that was seen was that that, uh, that actually, yes, you can collect lots of academic data, but then if you don't get evidence from from the patients about what this means in context, if you don't then talk to others about what what might be the other considerations of that, you're not going to actually be able to to have the most effective treatment. And so the same holds here that what we do is we collect data from from academic sources, from practitioner sources of evidence. Um, We collect data from the people who are affected by the the problem we're trying to solve. stakeholders who are experts in that area and also the local context. So for this particular research, we um, we did a systematic literature review at the beginning of both academic and practitioner data. So that was looking at any data that had been published since 2008. And the reason we chose 2008 was because that was the time of the last financial crisis. And so we wanted to look at data that looked at how employees, how employers support employees during finance times of financial constraint. Um, we then um, the second stage was to look at um, organizational data collection. So we worked with six different organizations, and in those organizations, we 
We conducted all employee surveys. Um, we had focus groups with employees. Um, we had focus groups with stakeholders, which might be the managers and occupational health and the HR. Um, for, so for that, with the third stage was then we had a thought leader, two thought leader sessions where we got um, policymakers, um, but key thinkers in this area, um, people from kind of wider perspectives, which might be social policy or economic policy, to talk to us about what they thought and what their research showed. Um, and then we drew draw all those together into a into an interim report. It took you about two and a half minutes to say, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it took you longer than two and a half minutes to do. I can imagine that's a huge piece of research to try and get it intertwining and getting common themes coming out of that. So how long did this has this research take you? So we started the research in um in September. Oh no, we we commissioned the research in September, we started it in December and we published it in June. So fantastic. So actually if you think of it in terms of I think that's the other thing that's so different about doing research from a from a place of practice rather than research in academia. If we were doing this as a research project within a with for a grant holding body in, in academia, it would probably take two years. Um but obviously being being within a consultancy, we're able to be much more agile to that. And we knew that we wanted to to be able to publish the results as soon as possible because people need this as soon as possible. I mean, the estimations when we started it was that the cost of living crisis would effectively stop at the end of this year, um, although the repercussions would go on until potentially spring, um, early summer of 2024. Um, of course, now now we see that's a moving feast, and there's suggestions that cost of living crisis will continue. We might dip into recession, however that might be. So yeah, there felt to be an extreme urgency to get the data out. And I think that, that does show the, the agility of just still doing research in, in the in the private world, and and I think we forget that that does happen, and I think organisations. I think miss an opportunity sometimes of going getting to the root cause of their problems by not commissioning research in the private section and doing a bit of OD work within their organisations with that context. And I love the fact that you use the evidence-based uh, practitioner model. I know Rob Briner is an absolutely key person behind that. Um, but even Peter Keyes at the Festival of Work uh, just a couple of months ago, uh, in his opening speech, he finished it by saying HR has to be evidence-based going forward and everything so it's great to see this in action in the work that you're doing so you gathered all this data you went to multiple sources and you used an evidence-based approach so I'm sure our listeners are all waiting for my next question which is what were your findings what did you find through your research so so as you can imagine with that huge amount of data there's a huge yeah. amount of findings so so firstly to say about the literature review um there, firstly, there's very little academic literature. Um, I think one of the reasons for that is that it's um, that it's very tricky to pragmatically to do a search around this because you try and look for something to do with um, support during an economic crisis, and and you're overwhelmed with research kind of stuff that comes back that is about economics and and crises. So. Um, we so we just found five 
academic papers. I mean, we had 702 papers that we had to read through, but but five that were that were of any use. And those uh, um, within those five, there were three things that that they had found to be useful to employ to support workers. So this was work-life balance practices. So this is where we're talking about um, um, enabling people to to work flexibly, to potentially work um, to can work compressed hours, um, to take opportunities for career breaks, to work remotely, and so on. So this is where we might see that people are coping with the cost of living crisis in order to, so they might save on um, save on um, um, traveling at peak time, for instance, um, or save on their their petrol cost by staying at home. Then some of them um, in the organizational research we found were were had chosen to work flexibly because they had taken on more than one job, sometimes three or four jobs. The second thing is enabling people to job craft. Um, so this is really importantly where you enable them to have more have more autonomy. So one of the things that you see, and, and we talked to, I guess, about the top of this about is about the loss of control. Um, this this sense of this being done to you and so giving opportunities for for employees to have more control over over their their roles being able to um, solve their own problems being able to to think perhaps about getting upskilling opportunities um planning getting having a having a plan b if if everything should happen and the third was um in academic literature, suggesting wider things like stress management training. So suggesting that the kind of standard things you might do for well-being would be would be useful here. There was more practice literature than there was academic literature. So we found eight different pieces of practice literature that have been written on this. And practice literature, we tend to for, for what we talk about, it means means literature that is that is rigorous so academically rigorous but is not published in a peer-reviewed journal so that might be for instance policy reports from think tanks such as Deloitte it could be um, or the Work Foundation or places places like that. The practitioner literature said there's five more things non-paid practices that would be useful. The first is benefits to increase um, financial resources or security so this might be where um, where they might be um, subsidized food um, where there might be a cafe where it might be a travel reduction scheme so petrol cost travel um, things like that um, being able to buy annual leave days back um, the second was measures to combat stigma so the stigma is a huge thing um, I think particularly in the UK um, we have so much stigma about finances we none of us will talk about how much we're paid um, and likewise, people don't want to talk about if they're struggling financially either. So measures to combat stigma to enable people to, to talk more openly are seen as good in the in practitioner. Um, measures to improve equity. Um, equity is something I'll talk about a bit later, but is, is one of the, I guess, guiding contributions of this research is, is just how inequitable this whole situation is with cost of living. Financial management promotion is another one. So that's where you might give webinars um, or support about financial budgeting, financial well-being, financial planning. Um, and the last one is um, is more kind of business 
strategic measures. So that might be where you collect data to enable you to understand who might be struggling um, or who is who are the, the kind of the most vulnerable in your organization. So essentially, we had the very, very different types of data from these from these eight pieces of literature. I guess the, the weightier and perhaps the more interesting data comes from the organizational data. Um, and the the first one was about just how difficult it was to talk about non-pay offers. Um, I think in retrospect, mm. I think we went into this a bit naively, um, thinking that if organizations can't change the pay, then they can then they'll still be able to support people by non-pay. Um, and I think that and I think that the very strong voice came back to say that if you are not meeting basic financial needs, then talking about non-pay offers is both harmful and probably morally insulting. And there were people, employees that we talked to that were not being able to eat every day um, that were that had, that were not being that were getting behind on rent. These, they were not having their basic financial needs met. And so therefore going into those organizations and saying, how can your employees support you was was too much, was too much. And I think so. I think that's the caveat that we have to put across all of this in terms of we can only say these things work if if you're paying people appropriately. Um, the second thing is what we found is that loads of organizations were, were doing lots. Um, um, sometimes they were repackaged from COVID stuff. Sometimes they were repackaged from wellbeing stuff. Um, they were doing lots though. Um, but the views from employees were that it was not enough. Um, and what you saw is that our levels, employees' level of need differs so massively. So what would be useful to me um, is very different to what would be useful to you. And so what, what was happening was that Although employees, although employers had had perhaps a risk roster of initiatives or support they were doing, there were many people that were feeling excluded by those. So one example, for instance, is um, is discount vouchers for supermarkets. So this is quite a common thing that organisations do. But if that if those discount vouchers are not for a, a supermarket that you would normally swap shop from, then they're not going to be useful to you. Um, and this also relates to this to this idea of accessibility as well. So, so often that the discount vouchers are for things that are perceived to be high value by by a big proportion of the workforce. So, for instance, if shopping vouchers from from Sainsbury's, um, when if people can only or would generally only shop at Lidl or or Aldi then shopping vouchers at Sainsbury's mean your that £50 voucher is is not is going to be worth a, a basket rather than a trolley. It's where you normally shop. So they're not so useful. 
Likewise, lots of those discount vouchers are on things that are day trips and things. And, and what you hear from employees is, is even if you give me the cost of entrance free, I can't go on a day trip because I can't afford the train fare there. I can't afford to feed the kids when I'm there. I, this, the, cost, the cost of everything surrounds something like that is too much. So there was a real issue with accessibility um, and this perception that often the choice, the support offerings were chosen not by those who were affected by this. So chosen by the kind of the privileged um, and were not actually therefore appropriate or accessible to those that were not privileged. And I think this is where equity really comes in, that this idea that um, we know that the cost of living crisis disproportionately affects those that are most vulnerable and those that socially and those that are most financially vulnerable as well. But what we found in our research is that that the support offered for organisations is is often not hitting those that are most vulnerable and and those most socially and financially vulnerable because they're they're either not able to access them because the support offerings are wrong. Um, or they're not able to access them because they because of perhaps language language capabilities because of perceptions of stigma um because they might work shifts and so the accessibility of lots of these offerings are not at times they would go and so on and so on and so on um i feel like i need to stop because i i need to let you speak um because i could rabble on all day you need to just say something I'm sure there's a lot of listeners listening right now, just like me, who are thinking I could listen to you all day with the wealth <laughs> of, of, of findings that, that are coming out there. I mean, as you've seen, this we're on a video call for those of you who are listening in, is, is I've been scribbling down absolutely <laughs> loads of stuff. And and I love doing podcasts with people who bring genuine um, addition to thinking. And I think there was so much you were saying there that actually no matter what flavor of HR practically you are or, or manager or leader listening in here, there are things here that you can directly impact. And I, to, to me, it's almost like there, there was a number of things that came through my mind. Um, one was some of the stuff that we offered through the back end of COVID to help people adjust to the new way of working might actually still help here when you're talking about the flexibility and the job crafting and the autonomy piece. But then I was thinking almost, so I, I was smiling inside when you were saying um, about actually that people, the privileged people set the, the kind of the, the reward stuff. Because I think that is so true a lot of the time. And too often we're thinking too much about the employee value proposition and how we're seen externally to the market when recruiting people when thinking about reward um, uh, kind of a non-financial help. And I'm thinking, I then started thinking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and thinking there's almost a reset there, isn't there? Because as we know, we can bring in that good old triangle that everyone bashes around. Um, when you're in financial struggle, you, you drop so much from the ego needs straight the way down to the safety and security needs. And people, we know that people have been downsizing their supermarkets kind of thing to, to which um, brands they, they use that happens in every financial um, situation, but I would question whether we are shifting from our Alton Towers vouchers in our organisations down to the the little as the um, mm. Aldi um, kind of range. And I think you're right, that inequity 
means that there is we should have a moral duty to, to push towards the, the people who are right at the bottom of the safety net and supporting them in a time of crisis. And we should be brave enough as yeah. organisations to do that. So, I mean, this brings me on to, to probably my last major question of, of the day. There's so much richness there coming out. If you were talking to some stakeholders in an organisation who could affect this non-financial aspect of um, supporting people in the cost of living crisis, what one or two things would you be advising they do based on the research and the your findings? Yeah. So, so we had we had two two um, key calls to action from this. I think that the first is that that the to truly support employees, you need to focus on what employees need, and and that sounds incredibly simple and no brainer, but that's not happening. So first, that might be what people need in terms of ensuring their basic financial needs are met. Secondly, it's about not assuming what people need, but actually going out and asking people, making sure that you ask people that actually are in direct need, making sure you actually prioritise those supports as well. Um, because without that, the support you're offering is likely to, to at, at best be ineffective, at worst be actually deleterious, be actually causing greater harm to people as well and we heard examples like financial planning training that people were offered was was harmful to people to some people because if you think if you're if you're having to manage a, a budget those people are, are often crazy talented at managing budgets because everything has to be accounted for and then you have somebody come on to talk to them about managing budgets as if that's going to help um said so, so yeah utilize as much employee participation consultation as you can um making sure your supports are going to be relevant and accessible to all and be very very um cognizant of of equity here i think the second thing is is recognizing the vital importance of line managers in this um line managers for both increasing access to support um so by by being able to signpost to employees um, where the support might be in the organisation or potentially ex externally, but also the line manager to be able to ask. So what we heard was that because of the stigma and shame that employees felt about about being in financial struggle, that they they often masked what the issues were. They didn't talk about it. They masked it. What that means is that that you're not going to just pick it up you might have to ask and so therefore there's a real role for line managers to check in to check in and be able to ask those questions and create an open open conversation where people can can actually bring forward that they're struggling and be supported in that and so so where the line managers can support this overall building of culture which is a culture of care and genuine consideration for people because if we if we have that then people are going to be more likely to say they need support and therefore we're going to be more likely to tailor support effectively to them. It's almost like um, getting line managers' awareness of this issue heightened and maybe giving them a little bit of support about how do you open the conversation about that? What's the one or two questions that could allow people to be given the space uh, and moving from into the world from empathy into compassion as a as a line manager and 
it's interesting, no matter how many different topics I talk to people about on the Capital Takeout podcast, at some point we always get back to the line manager and how the line manager is such a conduit mm. between the organization and mm. that individual. And they know them the best compared mm. to every, anyone else. They, they, they understand their weirdness and differenceness and all other words I can't pronounce. Um, but I think it's it's so important for the line manager in this case. A question, simple, you said, talk to your employees, but then earlier in the conversation, you said uh, you were slightly naive going in and talking about uh, non-financial help when people were struggling just to feed themselves. What was your your learning about how to approach that conversation if you did it again from scratch? What would you do differently, which might help organisations try not to be seen as condescending if they try what you try? So I think that I think that the problems come when organisations are imposing those supports within employees. So, so when organisations with the best will in the world were writing big communications to say, we understand that lots of you are struggling and this is all the things you've put in place. Um, what they should be doing is saying, we are running these open forums over the next few weeks where we want you to tell us um, what we can do to help you during this time. Um, as simple as that because asking asking employees to do that increases their sense of control and autonomy makes them feel listened to and generally supported and cared for and also enables organizations to put in the right support that will work and yeah, i mean that just links into some great practice for actually employee listening to get people bought into and engaged into an organization so it's not a a bad thing to try out then because actually you're supporting some of the other initiatives that you probably wanted to drive anyway so yeah. Rachel very quickly we're running out of time here on this podcast but as I said I could talk to you forever about this because I think this is so insightful you've obviously completed the, the work on the to actually produce your reports mm-hmm. um, and it's due out soon I know is there a way that people can find out more when the report is produced is there somewhere they can get access to it yeah so the report will be published in uh, mid-july we hope um it's it's been initially um released to our consortium members who took part in the research and so it just goes through a few phases within there um everything we do we aim for it to be free um and in the public domain as as will this one so it's it's a matter of checking on our website, which is just affinityhealthatwork.com um, and clicking into the research areas and seeing that. Or if you follow me or Affinity on LinkedIn, then as soon as it's available for the public domain, I will I will post it. It's fantastic. I love the fact we had 20 seconds of unashamedly promotion of the oh. organisation, which is good. Because <laughs> you so no, no, so you should. And I would have offered you it anyway. But, but no. <laughs> so everyone now knows where they can find you, where they can find uh, other research as well that you've done, as well as when this will, will finally come out. And I highly recommend following you and your organisation on LinkedIn. So Rachel, it's been wonderful uh, listening to you and talking to you about such a such as, as a sensitive and hot topic at the moment, which is is going to run and feel the impact for the next year or two, I'm sure. So I highly recommend to the listeners that they keep an eye on your website and, and, and even summarise down from today some of those key points you were talking about that they could go away and start doing in their organisations today. So, Rachel, thanks ever so much for coming today. Thank you.
no worries at all. And um, thank you to our listeners for finding and listening in to the Tap Talks HR podcast. You, you can find our complete back catalogue of podcasts at tapsolutions.com. Uh, but we'll be back soon with another Tech Talks HR podcast. But until then, bye for now. <laughs>